0: Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend
1: about us. Now here's the show. I'm arguing against banning books. They're arguing for banning books as a way to control education. They don't want any criticism of the United States.
0: One scholar responds to Florida rejecting his work on African-American studies for lacking educational value. It's Tuesday, February 14th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we hear what's in that African-American studies curriculum that Florida's Department of Education rejected last month, A senator shares what she heard in a classified briefing about those unidentified objects shot down by fighter jets. And stick around to the end if you're looking for a romance novel recommendation this Valentine's Day. First, though, we start with news of yet another mass shooting in America. Last night, a gunman killed three people and wounded five others at Michigan State University in East Lansing. Police said a 43-year-old suspect with no known affiliation with the school died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. There's no motive yet, and we'll be following the story at hereandnow.org and npr.org. Today also marks five years since the deadliest high school shooting in the country's history, when a former student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School killed 17 people in Parkland, Florida. The shooter was sentenced in November to life in prison without parole, and Florida has changed some gun laws since the shooting, in no small part thanks to activism by some students who survived. Not everyone agrees that will help prevent future shootings. Ryan Petty, for example, lost his 14-year-old daughter Elena in Parkland, and he said this to Fox News this morning.
2: I don't think gun control would solve these problems. There's too many guns already in the hands
0: of Americans across the country. The, the, the thought that we can pass some new gun control law and protect our schools just doesn't make any sense. Well, WLRN reporter Gerard Albert III joined us to talk about what has changed in Florida since 2018, he spoke to Robin Young.
3: Gerard, just briefly, how are people there responding to another shooting, you know, on the cusp of this day?
0: You know, today's a tough day
4: in general. For the Parkland community, they're pretty tight knit. They were before the shooting, they were even more after the shooting. Um, You know, not to say that they're used to it, but um, it hurts a little extra today uh, on the eve of the. Of the five-year anniversary.
3: Hurts extra. Well, let's take a look. Uh, In the aftermath of Parkland, survivors created that March for Our Lives movement, and that wave inspired state legislators to start passing laws. Uh, 2018 was a year of unparalleled success for gun control. Remind us.
4: Yeah, I mean, less than a month uh, had gone by, and the state legislation had raised the minimum age to buy a gun from 18 to 21 they passed red flag laws. Um, they implemented the guardian program that allowed for uh, teachers and other school staff to go through training and then be able to carry a gun. Um, they implemented a three-day waiting period. They expanded background checks, and they, formula- they formed a uh, public safety commission that uh, kind of led legislation and gave recommendations to legislators on, on what went wrong and how to prevent it.
3: Yeah. 14 states with Republican governors enacted 50 laws, many of them banning those bump stocks that uh, enable semi-automatic rifles to fire at a fully automatic rate. Is there a sense of how, whether these laws you know, made schools any safer? It kind of doesn't feel like it, but that's feelings. Do, do we know if they did?
4: Well, the red fla- flag law uh, has been used thousands of times in Florida alone, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that is looked at as something that definitely worked. The waiting period is looking at looked at something, looked at as something that definitely worked and uh, things like behavioral threat assessment, um, you know, catching these threats well beforehand. Uh, these preventative measures are looked at as successes. Um, but there really is no concrete way to tell how many of yeah. those threats would have turned into shootings.
3: What about thinking about shootings? There was outrage. Uh, that law enforcement in Uvalde, Texas, stood outside a classroom, didn't do what was determined to be the thing to do after the Columbine shootings back in 1999, don't wait, go in. In the Parkland shooting, a school resource officer is facing charges for allegedly not doing more to confront the gunman there. His trial later this month. What are people saying there about what they want to happen in that case?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, after Parkland we saw it, And then after Uvalde, it was like deja vu. Um, You know, schools now have to have an active shooter kind of assailant plan in place. I know law enforcement, especially here in Broward County where the shooting took place, has stepped up their game um, regarding that. Um, But it's still dependent on the moment, Um, Mm. you know. Yeah. Uh,
3: By now we're thinking, Gerard, you know, these students, five years is a long time at that age they've become young adults the students who survived i'm thinking of the video of david hogg you know who became an activist being chased down a street in washington by an unhinged marjorie taylor green who went on to become a lawmaker but was a conspiracy theorist accusing david hogg of being a coward yelling at him it's stunning what some of these survivors went through today david hogg told cbs you know it felt like a lifetime ago but in general what are you hearing how are they doing
4: a lot of the survivors and a lot of the parents of the victims were were the reason that these laws got passed. and and some of them have continued their activism, and some of them have decided, you know, I want to fight this fight, but I, I for my mental health, I don't want to be at the forefront of this. Um, and then you have to think about all the survivors that made a difference that are not, you know, catching national headlines and local headlines that are just, you know, working their way through college and trying to become professionals. Um, our station spoke with a student reporter who's now in college and carries that effect of, of trauma and, and being on the news to now mm. um, how she presents the news. So it, there's really no way to grasp how many people it affected and, and how uh, they are all kind of moving forward from it.
3: Trying to, sounds like you're saying.
4: Trying to, exactly. Yeah.
3: Well, and you know we hear it in your voice too. WLRN reporter Gerard Albert III, thanks so much.
0: Of course, thank you. Coming up, Robin asks Senator Kirsten Gillibrand what she heard during a briefing on those unidentified objects the military shot down over the weekend. That's after the break.
3: This morning, senators were given a classified briefing on the three unidentified objects that were shot down by U.S. fighter jets over Alaska, Canada, and the Huron last weekend, one week after that Chinese balloon crossed the country before being shot down off South Carolina. White House spokesman John Kirby has said one of the new objects was cylindrical, one octagonal, they appeared non-maneuverable, flying much lower than the suspected spy balloon, 20,000 feet. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, a Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, was in that briefing today. And Senator, that briefing was classified. What do you want us to know? So
5: these type of objects have been seen in our skies for many, many years, for decades. And because of that, we needed an office to review every single unidentified aerial phenomenon to assess what it is. And they've reviewed over 350 incidents, more than half, were uh, balloons and balloon-like entities, uh, two or three dozen were uh, UAS, which is on a, unmanned aircraft systems like drones, and then a handful were clutter or birds uh, or mm-hmm. other kind of debris. Mm-hmm. And so the understanding of what these objects are can be assessed now very scientifically. We don't know what these last three are until we get the debris, and the debris hasn't been fully recovered yet. But we know the first one was a Chinese spy balloon. And because it was flying above commercial aircraft space, we don't have a protocol yet for what we do with an object at that distance. And so that's decision making that the White House and the Congress are gonna need to do. Uh, and whether we're going to permit spying in that space.
3: Right. Okay. And you know, there's a lot of questions about this. So let me just jump in with a couple. Uh, First of all, it sounds like, yes, this is something that you and others are well aware of. The skies are getting cluttered with this new technology. Um, The White House announced today that by week's end, the National Security Council expects to have new guidance on how the U.S. government should treat unidentified aerial objects going forward. Now that there's been this big accounting of them that you just described, yeah, What do you want that guidance to, to include?
5: Well, um, they'll make an assessment about uh, when there is an object like the Chinese spy balloon that is collecting information about U.S. bases and U.S. military assets. Given the intensity of the number of different craft we've seen and given the concern of the American people, I suspect they will create a protocol that will say, This is something we aren't going to tolerate
3: going forward. But do you think, though, as many of your Republican colleagues say, this is a failure on the part of the Biden administration? As you've been saying, this is something that people have been studying for a while now in the government, how much is up there. Is this a failure to not sooner be more transparent with people about how much is going on?
5: I don't think it's a failure because this is the first administration that's even started to care and and took the time to set up this office and signed it into law. Uh, legislation that I wrote with Senator Rubio and Senator Warner and several other Democrats and Republicans.
3: Well, now people have seen them. You know, they see this balloon. Um, what do you think? Just very briefly, what do you think that says? Uh, you know, there's been debate about whether or not that is the Chinese being surprisingly inept. You know, with a balloon that everybody can see, and we've heard some military people saying, "Wow, we're, we're shocked that that we can that right. this has been so visible." Or do you think it's just being provocative?
5: You know, I, I, I always see China with clear eyes. I think they are very intentional about what they do, and I think they just may be looking to see how we assess this. So I don't think it's a failure at all. I think the, this administration's actually taken far more time on assessing unidentified aerial phenomenon than any one previously and made it public. No administration before this have ever made this kind of data public.
3: Well, let me ask, though, uh, White House spokesman again, John Kirby, said yesterday that we we are seeing these objects because the military radar filter was adjusted since that suspected Chinese spy balloon was shut down. And that's why they're seeing so many more. It feels like I'm hearing from you that uh, the appropriate people in government have been seeing these for a while and trying to sort of account for them.
5: Correct. Because our aircraft have so many devices on them, whether it's video or radar or heat sensors, they've been able to pick up uh, proof of these type of objects. Before this law, most of those service members were stigmatized. You're know, you thinking about aliens and you're crazy in the head or whatever type of stigma they put on these service members. And just because you don't know what it is doesn't mean you shouldn't track it or trace it. Now, the other context you should be aware of is the military did not deem any of these things as, um, as a risk to our national security or our safety. After the spy balloon was taken down, we reoriented our radars to see what else is up there right now that we need to detect to see if there's anything else that's going on by China, that could could be uh, reconnaissance or spy-oriented. There's a lot of things that are just scientific. There's yeah. lots of weather balloons. Well, let me ask you about that. scientific atmospheric yep. devices. And if these devices turn out to be non-Chinese, non-spying, but scientific devices, well, they shouldn't have been in commercial airspace. Exactly. And they're not
3: following the rules. Well, let me ask you about that, Senator, because that's what John Kirby is saying, that these could be commercial or mm-hmm. research balloons. Why Why aren't we hearing about people stepping forward and saying, oh, that was mine?
5: Well, there may be a lot of them, and people may not know it's theirs, and maybe they're doing it surreptitiously, and they're not following the rules.
3: Uh, It sounds like there's a lot to be sorted up, up in the skies. Is there anything you can tell us before we let you go that Mm. you heard today that you can share with us in this classified briefing um, that maybe we don't know? Well, I can just
5: say that they, they are taking this seriously. They have a very thorough process. They will be making information public when they have it. Uh, because I do think it's a national security risk long-term.
3: Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, the Democrat from New York, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Coming up, the College Board recently accused the Florida Department of Education of slander after the state's Republican administration dismissed a new advanced placement course in African-American studies because they said it lacks educational value. The College Board did change the course, But its CEO told CBS the changes were not spurred by politics. We at the College Board don't really look to the statements of politicians, but we do look to the record of history. So when we revised the course, there were only two things we went to. We went to what Brandi described, which is feedback from teachers and students, as well as 300 professors who have been involved in building the course. And we went back to principals that have guided AP for a long time and served us well. After the break, Deepav Fernandez speaks with one scholar whose work was removed from the curriculum. Stick around.
6: The pilot course for high school students taking the advanced placement class on African American studies is at the center of a national debate after Florida's Department of Education rejected it last month. Florida objected to a number of subjects included in the course, like Black Queer Studies, Reparations, and the Black Lives Matter movement. This month, the College Board released its final version of the course without those topics. We wanted to hear more about the removed content, so we've called UCLA History Professor Robin D. G. Kelly. His 2016 essay, Black Study, Black Struggle, was part of the unit on the Evolution of Black Studies, axed from the course. Professor Kelly, welcome to NPR. Thank you. So high school students in Florida now won't be reading your essay. What do you make of the fact that your work and an entire unit about black studies was cut out of the curriculum?
1: Well, I don't feel bad about my own work. I do feel bad that basically all secondary sources, pretty much anything that uh raises theoretical or conceptual issues, whether it's critical race theory, uh, intersectionality, queer studies, all of it's pretty much taken out or at least uh, set aside as optional. And once you take that out, you don't really have black studies. You have a kind of glorified eighth grade um, history course.
6: You know, explain to us the importance of secondary sources and how those differ from
1: primary sources. Right, you know, not everything can be a you know sort of seen through a primary source. That is a source that comes from straight from the source, the original source. So I think about, for example, just give you one illustration. You know, Angela Davis, of course, uh, is one of the real real pioneers of of black studies. And in 1969, she gave a lecture at UCLA uh, on Frederick Douglass, which is considered one of the core. Uh, original mm-hmm. courses in kind of modern black studies, and she says, black literature is more illuminating than the whole body of Western philosophy on the question of human freedom, because black lives of black of black people have, in her words, exposed. Uh, by their very existence, the inadequacy, not only of the practice of freedom, but its very theoretical formulation. Mm. You can't know that by simply reading a novel. You have to actually know how to interpret and analyze. That's what critical Mm. race theory is all about.
6: So I want to hone in then on your work, which was cut out. Can you tell us what the work covered? What are students not going to learn now
1: in Florida? (laughs) I, I, I laugh because... Uh, the article in question, you know, the the offending article uh, makes the arg- makes many arguments, and one of the arguments I make is that uh, students involved in struggles to transform a university actually need to read read the Western canon. <laughs> um, and I'm arguing against banning books. They're arguing for banning books as a way to control education. Uh, and what is that control? It's very simple they don't want any criticism of the United States. That's not intellectual work. That's not education.
6: Your argument also says that the university is not the best place to achieve really radical or lasting or meaningful social change because at best it leaves the world as it is intact and that perhaps the struggle for black students needs to come out Of the university.
1: Yes. Black Studies itself was organized not just uh, within the university, but against a university that promoted a kind of Eurocentric university culture, a university that had corporate ties with uh, the military industry, with police, dedicated to ways of thinking that kind of produced socially isolated individuals. Where objectivity had nothing to do with actually change, but it had to do with, you know, basically separating ourselves from reality, from the social world, and so that's why early Black Studies projects or programs were either independent or semi-independent of the academy, the Institute for the Black World in Atlanta, for example, or um, the Community University coming out of Chicago. This, which is to say, they were doing intellectual work, but at the edges or outside of the university with the hope of possibly transforming the university into something that sort of saw itself as being in the public good. The public good is not supporting war. The public good is not supporting, uh, you know, corporations that, that make money off of us, you know. And so that's the divide, the, the tension between black studies or third world studies in the university itself.
6: One of the examples that you give of the power of learning outside the classroom is the Mississippi Freedom Schools that came about in the summer of 64. Remind us what they did and and what their power was.
1: The Mississippi Freedom Schools came out of the activities of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Mississippi. And it's simply a recognition that the state of Mississippi had no interest in educating black people uh, and the kind of education that they were willing to Offer was one that maintained the status quo that didn't answer the critical questions of the day. Those questions were: Why is there racism? Uh, what What does Mississippi uh, gain from the structure of racism? Um, what do we want uh, as as a as a community that Mississippi has to offer, and what do we want to change in this state? These are these are questions that you know even uh, an eight year old can struggle with. And so the Mississippi Freedom Schools were outside of the formal public education institutions.
6: Professor Kelly, what I found very striking in what you said about the Mississippi Freedom Schools was, and I'm quoting you here, they didn't want equal opportunity in a burning house. They wanted to build a new house. I wonder if you can just tell us about this idea of true freedom for African-Americans and where the place for that to learn and to struggle and to deal with ideas can happen, if not in the university.
1: I don't have a lot of confidence in the university's ability uh, to provide space for freedom because it's tied up in the structure of, of domination. However, these are spaces with resources. And uh, I always, you know, I, I listen to Henry Giroux, the cultural critic, who argues that we can't have robust democracy without critical education. And so no matter where you are, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, critical education is asking the hard questions. And that's what the education we need to do if you want freedom.
6: You know, often missing from many discussions of race is the element of class and privilege. How does that shape our understanding of African-American history?
1: Class is fundamental. Um, we can't separate race from class. And one of the problems with Uh, Even black studies is a tendency to treat African Americans as a kind of uh, classless or monolithic group, when in fact, we tend to marginalize working class and working people and focus on middle class, the achievements of the elites and those who govern. And that, to me, ends up not just uh, distorting our history, but... um, undermining our ability to create a kind of democratic movement, which should be the purpose of our our work.
6: And then where does the economic structure that we live in factor in?
1: The fact of the matter is that we live in a country that was built on slavery and dispossession, uh, not necessarily on universal freedom. And for that reason... Um, we've seen examples of reparations in this country. I mean, the history of reparations in the U.S. has been paying uh, slave masters for the loss of their property. Uh, so it's not like it's new. The question is you know, whether or not we can achieve something like justice by um, reckoning, not just with police violence, but the whole history of violence and extraction that defines this country. And this is really the the fundamental question uh, for black studies.
6: And I just want to end by asking about something you mentioned in your essay that inside your desk, you have taped a small piece of paper that reads love, study, struggle. Tell me
1: about that. Those are the three principles I try to live by. And they're all connected. Um, And if we don't have a form of study that's based on love, uh, then we end up studying based on war. And I'm not interested in that.
6: Robin D.G. Kelly, Professor of U.S. History at UCLA, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much. One more thing
0: before we go. It's Valentine's Day, as you hopefully already know if you're planning on buying gifts or making dinner plans, but maybe you're the type to turn to romance novels on V-Day, like producer Kalyani Saxena. Part of the appeal of romance novels, she says, is how they keep things interesting while trafficking in familiar tropes. This year, Kalyani polled listeners on their favorite tropes in romance and shared some recommendations in this conversation with Deepa, starting with the number one trope, Enemies to Lovers.
2: I cannot start this conversation without talking about The Hating Game by Sally Thorne. It's my comfort book. I read it about once a year. It centers around two people— Lucy and Josh. They work together. They've hated each other for years precisely because they're complete opposites. Josh is sort of a corporate suit and Lucy is your classic quirky romance protagonist. Um, they've had beef for years and they're at each other's throats until one day, you know, they find themselves up for the same promotion and, and things start to change. And, you know, you can insert the little eyes emoji into the, mm-hmm. to the description. Okay.
6: <laughs> I'm just intrigued because you read this book once a year. That might mean I need to pick it up and read it. So, let's move on to the trope that landed in second place friends to lovers kind of a little different what books would you recommend for listeners that want to curl up with a story about two friends falling in love
2: You know, Deepa, I don't really read this trope a lot. um, So it isn't my favorite, but it was a favorite with our audience. Um, And the book that I have to recommend is People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry. Think it's like When Harry Met Sally if it was a romance novel. It's about Poppy and Alex. They're two best friends. They met in college and they have nothing in common except for the fact that every year they take a vacation together. That is until two years ago, something happened which ruined the friendship. And they get together for one last vacation, Mm. yeah, to try and fix things. Um, And, of course, some unresolved feelings come to the surface. All right, Kalyani. So uh, towards the bottom of the uh,
6: bracket were these two genres. One is second chance romance and the other is the fake dating trope. What are those?
2: So I feel like the second chance romance trope, it's pretty... Pretty self-explanatory. It's usually a couple that had some history. For some reason or the other, it didn't work out. And they're giving themselves another chance. The fake dating trope has become really, really popular in the romance genre in the last couple of years. It usually involves two characters. They're pretending to date for some reason, You know, perhaps to throw off an ex-boyfriend, uh-huh. garner publicity, get family off your back, which I'm very familiar with, uh-huh. um, You know, uh-huh. to make it believable. They do everything a couple would have to do, which wires get crossed, it gets confusing. And of course, they also promise to keep their feelings out of it. But I'm sure you can guess how well that goes. This
6: sounds so interesting. You really whet my appetite here. So my last question, Kalyani, what are you going to be curling up and reading this Valentine's Day?
2: It's gonna surprise nobody. I will be curling up with a romance novel this Valentine's Day, and it's probably going to be my copy of Emily Henry's Happy Place, which is a second chance romance about a supposedly perfect couple who has to pretend to still be together after they break up. It's not out till April, so I know that puts me on a lot of romance readers' rob lists. but you know what, I am okay with that. Hit me with your worst romance lovers.
0: You can find all of my colleague Kalyani Saxena's romance novel recommendations this Valentine's Day at hereandnow.org. Kalyani also produced the previous conversation with Professor Kelly. Our other stories today were produced by Hafsa Qureshi and Lynn Meneghan just part of the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.